so glad you're here. Have a seat, grab your Bible. We are talking about something that I think is in every human heart. There is no greater longing in human beings, in my experience, than the longing and the desire to belong. We all want to belong. And people show their desire to belong in really strange ways. It's not always pretty. It's not always hallmark worthy. Grown men, for instance, will wear the uniforms of teams they don't play for. Drive an hour away from home, fight their way through crowds, pay even more money for food that isn't that good, that they could have had more easily at home, and cheer for men on the field far from them that they'll never meet, millionaires, playing a game the spectators can't play very well themselves, and they will cheer and jump and dance for joy sometimes. The passion runs so deeply that I once had to pull my brother-in-law off a guy in a video rental store back when those existed because he said something mean about the Dallas Cowboys after a particularly painful loss. Those men wearing that team's laundry will sometimes fight with other men wearing the other team's laundry in those expensive seats where each man is paid for the privilege of watching people play a boy's, a girl's game. Strange that we do this. Frankly, one of the scariest afternoons I've ever had in my entire life, and I'm talking to you as a man who once had permission to go inside a Mexican prison and be released into general population to make visits there. That was daunting, but my afternoon at the old Los Angeles Coliseum watching the Raiders play the Chargers was probably more anxiety-inducing even than that. I'd never really been to a live game, and thank goodness we had good seats. Some friend of mine had a really good job, so we were up there with the rich people with the corporate seats. I'd never been to a live game, so I didn't really understand the concept of the television timeout because everything was quiet on the field, and suddenly there would be this burst of a roar of excitement in the stadium with nothing happening on the field. I was looking around saying, what are they cheering about? And what was happening was 12 Raider fans were beating the dog out of one poor Charger fan up in the cheap seats. That was the old L.A. Coliseum, and it was all about belonging. Some of you are wearing brand names on your clothing this morning. Others of you have tattoos of military units you once served with, of your brother's initials, of some symbol that is known really only to you and your family. But you've pierced your skin with the needle filled with ink as a lifelong tribute to the power of belonging. We all want to belong. The first thing any human being wants to belong to is a family. That's why the trauma of losing a parent always endures, even when the child is very old himself, when mom and dad are gone, when mom and dad were never known in the first place, that leaves a wound. I knew a little bit about this and had to navigate some troubles of my own because I grew up in Mexico. I was born on this side of the border, an American citizen, but raised in on the other side of the border, 240 miles south of El Paso in Chihuahua, Mexico. 
So it took me years to figure out who I really was. Because I knew I was a garner, I knew who my mom and dad were, I knew where my citizenship was, but when I went to school, I was the only kid that looked like this. And people would say to me sometimes, you kind of look Hispanic. No, not really. (laughs) Not in grade school. Not when your name is Bruce Garner. That blew my cover rather quickly. So I went through a season where I wanted to tell everybody my name was Mario. (laughs) Wanted to blend. Years later, when my family and I moved to Mexico as adults with our own children, we discovered, and it made my heart kind of joyful and sad all at the same time, when I discovered that one of my very young sons was in the playground rubbing dirt on his white skin, hoping to make it a little bit darker. What's that about? That's about belonging. Whether it's the passion of fans in a stadium, or a boy trying to adopt another name, or another boy wishing his skin were a little darker, we always want to belong. And that's the beauty of the message I'm sharing with you today. If you're here for the first time, let me tell you on the front side, you've joined us in deep waters already. We've been studying doctrine. We've been studying theology. And those are fancy words to describe one simple thing. We've been studying what the Bible teaches us about God and life itself. Don't be scared about the words doctrine or theology. There's just an organized way of pulling from the Bible, from all across the Bible, what it tells us about any particular thing. We've studied about the Bible itself, why we read it, why I'm up here with a Bible instead of something from Oprah's book club. We've studied most of all, and that brings us to today, we've studied about the nature and the existence of God, that God is eternal. He is unmade. He simply is. That God is, and God is life, and you have life because God is life, and God gives life. And we discovered that the word Trinity was simply an invention. The word itself was coined to describe God as he actually is. One God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and today, Holy Spirit. And I say it brings us into deep waters because when we start thinking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, when I think of God the Father, all kinds of images immediately rush to my mind because I'm a father, I had a father. We all instinctively understand what father and fatherhood is. Even if we didn't have a dad, we know the kind of dad we would have wanted. Men know what kind of father they want to be. That makes sense to us. When we speak of Jesus, God the Son, that makes sense as well. Because we're all children of someone, we can easily see a relationship between a father and a child. But when we speak of the Holy Spirit, that brings us into something conceptual, something spiritual, something invisible, because we're talking about literally a Holy Spirit. And I was raised on the King James Bible. Maybe you were as well. And that old Elizabethan English put a further obstacle in my young way because it called the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost. And that, to me, conjured up images of a kid with his mom's white sheet over his head, punching two ragged holes so that he could see his way through to go from house to house to trick or treat. 
we're a little bit in deep waters, but believe me, the effort it takes, and it doesn't take much because God may, God meant to be understood. God can't make everything he tells you about himself simple because God himself is deep. If you could understand everything about God and describe God perfectly, all that would prove is that the God you're describing is a God you made up. You don't even understand yourself perfectly. You've known yourself all your life. You pay attention more to yourself than you pay to anyone else, and you still walk away from situations saying, why did I say that? Why did I do that? What's wrong with me? So when we consider the person, the nature, the character of God, yes, it takes a little bit more of an effort, especially when we're talking about the third person with that, within that eternal Godhead, which is the Holy Spirit. But the beauty of what I'm going to show you is this. It's really just the good news. The good news you've just seen portrayed through the symbol of the Lord's Supper and through the symbol of baptism that God loved his sinful and fallen creation so much that God the Father sent God the Son and Jesus lived righteously in the place of sinners facing all of our temptations. Every wicked thing that I've ever succumbed to, every solicitation to evil and selfishness and pride and every kind of ugliness that separates me from other people and from a holy God, Jesus faced all of those temptations, conquered them, lived obediently to God the way I never did, and he laid down his life to trade lives with me so that in the power of his resurrection, he would take eternal life back, not only for himself, but he would be able to give it to me. As Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. And then, having the Father sent the Son, the third person of the Trinity works. Last week I showed you the first thing the Holy Spirit does when you're not yet sure about Jesus is he shows you that you have sinned. He shows you your need of the righteousness of Jesus instead. He warns you of a day of judgment that he alone can save you from. That's what the Holy Spirit does for unbelievers, for people who have not yet trusted Jesus. And the moment we do, the Holy Spirit does a work which I'm going to describe to you now and will continue to do a work in you every day of your Christian life until God brings you safely home to himself where you really and truly and will totally belong to him and you will belong with others. What is it that the Holy Spirit does for us when we trust Jesus as Savior? I told the first service I'm going to try to be quick. You know what that means? Not much. It means that I'm trying. I just want to show you four things, and they're all related to belonging. Because God is one who eternally exists in three persons, and no, I can't completely fathom that either. That means that there is a unity in the operations of God. It is God who saves, but within the fellowship and the harmony of the Trinity, every person is doing something different. In simple language, God the Father did not die for you. God the Son did that. The Father loved you and sent the Son. The Son lived and died for you. And once that is done, God the Holy Spirit applies what the Father and the Son have done. The new life that Jesus died to give you is applied by the Holy Spirit. The first thing the Holy Spirit does for Christians is give us new life. 
I want you to listen to Jesus in John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And we're stepping back in time in history. Jesus is talking to a religious leader. Nicodemus has come to him probably in embarrassment by night. He cannot deny the miracles that Jesus is doing. He says, teacher, you're amazing. We know that nobody can do the things you're doing unless God is with them. And Jesus just starts hitting him with cryptic statements. He tells him, in fact, you must be born again. And that phrase has been thrown around to mock Christians ever since. And sometimes people doing the mockery don't realize that they're using the actual words of Jesus. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, like a good religious leader, had absolutely no idea what Jesus was talking about. And Jesus even chided him and said, you're a teacher. You don't know this stuff. Jesus was talking about new life, new birth. Here's how he put it. Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I can't go too long here, but water should have been understood by Nicodemus with his knowledge of what we call the Old Testament to be a washing, a cleansing, a remaking from God. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here's the main idea. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, Nicodemus, you were born once in human flesh from your mother's womb. You have a mother and a father who gave you earthly, fleshly life. You'll never make it like that. To be in the kingdom of God, to belong to God, you need more than a physical birth. You need a spiritual birth. You need new life. Here's how Paul explained it years later to a young pastor named Titus. This is by far my favorite passage in the sermon. And if you have your bulletin, I want you to look carefully at the passage because I have a question for you along the way. Titus chapter 3. Paul is really explaining the Christian good news of Jesus saving people. Here's how he does it. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. God our Savior. Do you see that? Who do you think Paul's referring to there? He's referring to Jesus. That's what I thought the very first time I read the passage. But let's keep reading. <clears throat> Excuse me. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. If you're new to church, if you normally do something else on Sunday mornings during other, while other people go to church, let me walk you through that little bit right there because that is the message of Scripture. Many people avoid church because they think that some self-important blowhard like me is going to get up with a microphone and a Bible and tell people to try harder and tell people to be more like they are, and that is entirely wrong. And if you were ever taught that in church, or I personally have ever given that impression, please forgive us and set that aside. What is actually happening, Paul here says, is that God our Savior saved us because of his mercy, not because of any righteous deeds of our own. 
Religion, the world wide tells us through all kinds of names and in some churches that call themselves Christians that you've blown it and come up short and you need to try harder and if you try hard enough and long enough maybe God someday will accept you and some religious people grow very very proud because they think they've made it others despair and give up altogether because they understand deep in their heart their conscience shows them they'll never make it so they give up paul blows that whole myth out of the water by saying that the kindness and the love of god our savior appeared and he saved us look at it again not because of works done by us in righteousness in other words not because we were good enough but rather according to his own mercy how did he do it here's where it gets kind of deep and conceptual and spiritual god did that by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit those are words that are rare anywhere, rare in the New Testament. Paul is drawing on his knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures, which Titus would have been taught as well. He's actually echoing Jesus when Jesus spoke of water and the Spirit. The point is this. The mercy of God saves us by regenerating us and renewing us. In other words, it's not a life made a little bit better. Jesus isn't a self-help coach. He doesn't have a book at Barnes & Noble telling you how to get 1% better every day, as I seem to hear a lot of online coaches saying. Just 1% better every day. Man, in two years, I'm going to be extraordinary. I'm going to be superhuman if I can keep it going 1% better every single day. I'm going to be a mutant of some kind in two years' time. The Bible blows all of that out of the water. It is regeneration. It is renewal. In other words, it's a whole new life. It's not your life. It's the life of God given to you. And that is done through the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through, what's it say? Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, didn't it say God, our Savior in the beginning? And then it says that all happens through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who saves us. God does. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God saves you. What it is telling you specifically in the beginning of that verse, the Father is the Savior because he gave you a whole new life through the Spirit who he was able to pour out richly into your life. It's all word pictures to help people understand your life is not going to be slightly improved. You're going to be given a whole new life and it is going to be poured out richly on you through Jesus Christ our Savior. What am I trying to tell you? Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Christians are not reformed, they're reborn. If you're here pursuing reformation, in other words, getting just a little bit better, you've come to the wrong place. This church announces the name of Jesus, which offers you something better, not reformation, but rather rebirth, the life of God himself. Number two, the Holy Spirit, having done that, having entered into our life richly and given us life, he actually stays. He doesn't just drop life on you and flow on. He actually comes and the life of God is actually part of you. The life of God through the Holy Spirit lives not only, is not only for us, it lives in us. 
Listen to Jesus again. Just before dying, he taught his disciples this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. In other words, Jesus is telling the disciples on the night when wicked men are going to come with weapons and torches in the dark of night to arrest him and kill him for crimes and sins he did not commit. He will not resist them. He will go willingly to the cross using divine power to protect his disciples so that they could escape, so that they later could tell his story. The only reason that is happening is because Jesus is dying to give them new life, and once he's done it, the Holy Spirit is going to come and give them the life that Christ died to make available to disciples. And Jesus is telling his disciples, the world has no idea what's happening here. They don't know me. They don't believe in me. They don't know the Spirit. They have no dealings with God because they do not believe or understand what's happening here. Verse 17, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit has already been operating through the life of Jesus. The, whole, the disciples have seen it. They've enjoyed it. They've been part of his ministry. They've been part of that power. Jesus is saying, he's been with you. Now that I'm leaving, he's not only going to be with you, he is going to be in you. So you're not alone. The most extraordinary thing I've seen, and I've seen it in several countries, including one that is very, very difficult, very oppressed, or the tyranny of the government is real and makes Christians live under constant pressure. I have seen people persecuted sometimes unto prison, being cast out of their families, having their belongings packed and waiting for them outside their homes the day they got baptized, their families symbolically telling them through that, you're dead to us, you're following Jesus, you have no part with us. I have seen more joy, more peace, more goodness, more confidence in those kinds of situations than I have many times in here in affluent coastal Orange County. And the reason is Jesus keeps his word. He does not leave us alone. He does not leave us orphans. He does come to us. He keeps these promises through the Holy Spirit. Here's how Paul explained it to another ancient church, the church at Rome. Notice how all these symbols, all these word pictures keep repeating themselves. Paul wrote, you, however, are not in the flesh if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. How many Christians then have the Holy Spirit? That was tepid. All genuine Christians have the Spirit because it is the Spirit who has come through the love of the Father and the sacrifice of the Son to give new life. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If you have your notes there with me on the app or in your bulletin, read verse 11 with me because it makes an incredible promise to you. Read verse 11 with me. It says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you catch that? The power of God that made a Roman guard fall over for fear as if they were already dead. The power of God who removed a stone of several tons, not so that Jesus could get out, but so that the world could see he was no longer there. That same power of God who made life, who is life, who can take life and give life, the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. And though death may have its way in your mortal body, in other words, you're aging, your health is failing, you know even in the strength of your youth that you're fragile. And an accident could take you down, reduce you to a shell of what you once were, or take your life in an instant. With all of that mortality, with all that frailty so real to you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, God is life, and through the Holy Spirit we have his life. This is the gift. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not that he takes your life and makes it a little bit better. It's not that he takes your mortal flesh and puts a stamp on you and says, good enough, this will get you to heaven. No, you are welcomed into the very life, into the very fellowship, into the actual family of God. Through the Holy Spirit, you have the life of God himself. And that means that we're alive and never abandoned. And that explains the songs of the persecuted. That explains Christians worldwide who have suffered physically and financially for their death, saying, you'll have to kill us. Jesus is too real to us. We know who he is. We love him so much. We cannot deny him now. Take us away if you must. Kill us if you must. But we will not deny the Savior we know and love. Those Christians are real. Their stories are told in history. Their stories are still being lived out today in countries I won't mention because we're on the internet and I don't want to make further trouble for them. But I've been in touch with them this week with historic persecution, persecution that has not been seen in a lifetime, engulfing them, pushing them to the very point of hunger and the very point of death. And all I get in the messages they manage to get me through encrypted text messaging is joy, is confidence that it's all worth it because the life of God in them that is quite, quite real. The third thing that the Holy Spirit does for you is he seals you. He seals us as his own. Ephesians chapter 1. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and I know that's a lot of Bible language if it's your first time in church, let me simplify it for you. Paul's writing to a church in ancient Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. It is a city that is legendary for bad behavior. They had an idol in the city of Ephesus that was world-famous. 
The Ephesians were so committed to an immoral, depraved lifestyle, not as bad as the Corinthians, but pretty bad. They had mystery, what religious scholars today called mystery religions. In other words, they believed in secret esoteric knowledge that was only could be revealed to a few. And many of those ancient pagan religions believed that the way to access that divine knowledge was to get really, really drunk and have orgiastic sexual experiences and the ecstasy of drunkenness and the ecstasy of human sexuality used in a way that was pleasing to the person that would come to do the worship in that altered state. That's when words would, of knowledge would be revealed. That's how they would commune with the gods. That's why it's in Ephesus that Paul says, stop getting drunk with wine and start being controlled by the Holy Spirit. He says, basically, you've had alcohol run your life for a long time. Stop letting alcohol call the shots. Start letting the Holy Spirit who lives in you call the shots instead. In other words, respond to the person and the work of God that's already in you. He saved you. He sealed you. He's guiding you. Answer to him. Respond to him. And the word picture that Paul uses here in Ephesians 1 verse 13 is this. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in other words, when you heard the good news that Jesus could save you and you believed in him, here's what the Holy Spirit does. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit seals you guarantees you is a down payment some of your Bibles say for you that everything that God has and everything God has promised you will someday be yours let's put this in earthly terms have you ever received an inheritance I haven't by God's grace my people are still alive and I'm super happy about it if you've had an inheritance, that means that somebody died. Everybody been cut out of an inheritance? Executor get a little squirrely? In my extended family, there are stories that circulate about who should have had what. But somebody cut in, somebody changed a document, someone misrepresented mom's dying wish, and now those people aren't talking to each other anymore. Using that very earthly figure known to us all of an inheritance, Paul says something extraordinary. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your inheritance or the down payment of your inheritance. Imagine a God so generous that he has promised to make you his heir. Not A-I-R, H-E-I-R. In other words, an equal partner. You have an equal share with all your brothers and sisters in all of the infinite riches of God. You're rich and you, don't already, and you just don't know it. You are rich in heaven beyond description. You are rich beyond the Bible's actual attempt to explain it to you because Paul said elsewhere that no one had ever imagined and no human eye had seen what God has prepared for those he loves. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is the guarantee, or another translation says the down payment. Imagine a God so generous that he promises you everything, and as a guarantee, he gives you himself. 
It can't be any better than that. I've described to you a little bit of the drama. A therapist would say trauma, but I'll just say drama that I experienced growing up in Mexico. Trying to be a little kid who was passing from Mexican with a name like Bruce Garner. I speak Spanish, folks. It's hard to say Bruce Garner in Spanish, okay? It's very, very hard. It just doesn't roll off the Spanish-speaking tongue very well. I was trying to navigate all that, and I was doing that without siblings. I'm an only child. The reason for that, my mother made it plain to me, I was so bad as a little boy, they said, that's it. <laughs> I'm not joking. That's what she said. If you call my mother today and say, why didn't you have another kid? She'll probably say something like, have you met Bruce? Um, <laughs> good enough. So I went through all of that very much alone. I had to figure that out on myself, by myself. I was a little kid with parents. And what gave me stability, what gave me confidence is I was blessed by God to have both a mother and a father, and a father in particular that I knew would do anything to protect me. And even though he wasn't always there to do it, I knew my dad would take life if necessary for my good to protect me. And more important than that, he was willing to lay his life down one day at a time so that life would be good and safe for me. I had an amazing dad. Why am I telling you this? Because your heavenly father has designed the world in such a way and his character eternally exists in such a way that when it comes time to give you the good news that you can be in his family by the death of his own son, he's going to welcome you as an equal heir. And the guarantee and the down payment of everything God will give you is God the Holy Spirit himself. You couldn't be any safer. You couldn't be any richer. You couldn't have any better faith in, in the world. You couldn't have any better hope for the future. It's all given to you by God. He is both the guarantee and the down payment of everything that God himself has promised us. And finally, the Holy Spirit reassures us that we are God's children. Because some of you are sitting here thinking to yourself, well, first of all, this is quite a drink out of a fire hydrant. Let me recap if I lost you. The Father loved you so much that seeing you lost in sin, he sent the Son to live and to die for you. When you trust the Son and stop trusting yourself, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, rushes into your life and gives you all of that. He gives you the life of God. He regenerates you. He places you and seals you in God's family so that when God looks down from heaven, so to speak, he sees you with his name, with his mark, with his inheritance that's already yours. And some of you are sitting here thinking, this all sounds great, but not for me. Like I often am, you're tormented by shame and guilt because you have a good memory and you have an active conscience and you think to yourself if God knows every single thing about me including all of my thoughts he might love other Christians this way but not, not me 
I'm in the family, but when the family gathers, I know I'm going to be at the kids' table in the kitchen somewhere. I'm not going to be in a place of honor. I'm not really a joint heir. That's for those very special Christians who are very, 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 very close to Jesus and very much like him. Those kinds of accusations, that kind of shame, that kind of guilt, that kind of memory, that's normal. I studied years ago with one of the greatest living American theologians, Dr. Bob Sosi. His knowledge was extraordinary and his character was even better. And he said, any of you gentlemen ever doubt that you're really a Christian? And pious bunch of pukes that seminarians are, oh no, of course not, oh, the gospel, Jesus. And he said, oh, it's good to, good to study with you then. I do sometimes. Because when I look deep in my heart, I think to myself, surely no one who really knows Jesus could think or say or do a thing like that. That's real. Look how the Holy Spirit addresses that. Two verses. The first in Romans. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And obviously here this means sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And Abba here is not a cheesy disco group from the 70s. That is Aramaic, a language very closely related to Hebrew. And when I say it like that, Abba, you can hear the childish term that it is. It's the Aramaic word for father. It's a term of, it's a term of affection. It's a term of closeness. The little family that dedicated that miracle baby I told you about in the baptistry. I don't know what Mateo's saying just yet. We didn't talk much. He's just a little over one year old. But soon he will look into his mother and father's face, if not already, and he will say with baby lips and baby sounds, Mama, Dada. And it will be the greatest joy of their lives. I know that because I had that experience twice with two different little boys. And what Romans is saying here is that the Spirit himself is the one by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, he teaches us to call out to God and call him, if I may, our own dad. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. There's the riches, there's the inheritance again. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, for those persecuted believers, yes, you're suffering, yes, it hurts, yes, it matters, but it doesn't matter that much because your present day suffering will be absorbed by life and replaced by riches and privilege. That in the book of Romans, look in Galatians. Different church, different group of Christians, same writer saying something slightly different. We put these two things together, it's absolutely amazing. Watch. Because you are sons, he's once again reassuring Christians in two different places that they're actually children of God. He's saying sons, but he means sons and daughters. It's just an ancient way of speaking. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, a Bible study question, and we're through. 
Look again at the passage in Romans, the passage I just read where you first heard the term Abba. Who there is saying Abba? Who is calling out Abba? Who is calling God Father? We are. Do you see that? That's simple enough, right? By whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, the Holy Spirit rushes into your life, gives you the life of God, and teaches you what little Mateo will someday learn to do, to turn to God, the creator and the king of the universe, and say, you not only made me, you're my dad. I belong to you. I'm safe in your family. I'm safe in your love, Father. Now look in Galatians. This is a little bit different. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying. Same thing, Abba, Father. Who's saying Abba in Galatians? The spirit is. Paul make a mistake, you think? Did he have it right in Romans and get it wrong in Galatians? No, look, listen, and I'm done. Here's how great the love of God is for you. The Father sending the Son, the Son dying for you, the Spirit rushing into your life the moment you believe the good message, the, the good news that you need a Savior. You turn away from your sin and yourself and you trust Jesus. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit rushes into your life, gives you the very life of God and teaches you as a little kid to say, now you can call God your dad. And because little children often fear that they've lost their father's love, sometimes fear that their father will be insufficient, that their father will be forgetful, that their father will be faithless. The Holy Spirit rushes into our hearts and the Spirit says to our hearts, Abba, Father, he's still your dad. He still loves you. He's still with you. You ever seen a little child get lost standing two feet from his mom or dad in the grocery store? They look around momentarily, and because they're so small, and because they're still in that young age so ignorant, they think all is lost, and a piercing whale parts everybody's hair at Ralph's grocery store, and then dad says, buddy, I'm right here. Oh, I thought you'd left me. I wonder how many times the father, knowing how much he loves us, looks down at us as those Frightened little children with no need to be afraid at all because through the gift and the work of the Holy Spirit, you belong to God. You're in his family. You cannot be wrenched from his grasp. You cannot be kicked out. You will always be loved. You will always be saved. You will always have the life of God in you because that's what the Holy Spirit does. You belong. Let's pray together. I've been talking to Christians. Christian, will you take a moment if you know God this way and just thank him? Did you even realize how safe you are, how loved? And if you're not sure about Jesus, can I invite you in his name to trust him right now? Let me be really specific. I'm asking you to give up on yourself and whatever else you've been doing or trying or trusting and turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm here to be honest with you and honest with myself. I've sinned. I've fallen short of your standard. I've come up way short 
of your perfect righteous standard, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Give me the life that this pastor's been talking about. Friend, I know it's a lot for me to take in. I know you can't understand it all. I don't understand it all. I can't get my whole mind around everything I just told you. Just make it really simple. The Father saw you lost in sin, far from him. He sent the Son to live and die in your place. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are ready, willing, eager, loving to give you new life. You trust Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Trust Jesus. The Holy Spirit will rush in and change everything. He won't just reform you. He'll remake you. You'll be a whole new creation. And you'll spend the rest of your life walking out that new life that God can give you this morning if you'll trust Jesus. So if you see that need in your life, if the Holy Spirit is showing you that I'm telling you the truth, and it's not about me, I'm just the messenger. But if you've heard the truth this morning and the Spirit is telling you you're hearing the truth, trust Jesus. I want to give you a moment to do it right now. Father, I pray if there's any here who don't know you as Savior, that right now they would turn to you and say, Jesus, I give up. I'm turning myself in. Forgive my sins. Save me. Guide me. Lead me. Help me live this new life that you've given me. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we've had quite a day at church. If this morning you have a question, if this has piqued your interest, if God has opened your mind a little bit to know more, there's a card in your bulletin that you can use to fill it out. Let us know that you're here. If you have a question, let me know what it is. I'll look at it myself. I'll be in touch with you in a way that will make you uh, feel comfortable, your terms, your time. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, take that same card you think today you've trusted Jesus as Savior, or maybe you'd like to. Take the card and check the first box that says so. If you're online, send us a text or send me an email. We have these tiny little boxes at the exit. I don't know why we made the boxes so small, honestly. It's like one last impediment before we can really connect with people. Maybe we'll make the boxes bigger someday. I don't know. But if you look very carefully at the exits, there's these little wooden boxes there. You can take that card fill it out. Guests, if you're here for the first time, we'd love to know it. If you have a question or today you've made the life-saving decision to turn yourself over to Jesus, for sure let us know about that and drop that card in the exit. If you're here for the first time, we'd love to send you a gift of coffee. Just a little gift card in the mail. I won't show up. I won't... Uh, I won't be stalkery or weird or creepy as pastors sometimes have a reputation of doing. When I was interviewing here, somebody said, you're not the kind of guy that just shows up at dinner time, are you? I said, no, people do that. So yeah, we attended a church where the pastor used to do that. I won't do that. Your time, your terms, here's the deal. Because God is our father, we really are a family. And we've seen and experienced great love from God and we have great love for each other and we would love for you to be part of it. We've taken a little longer than we normally do this Sunday with all that we had to do, but it's been absolutely amazing. I'm so glad that you came. If we can serve you in the name of Jesus in any way, particularly if you're our guest, if you're just checking this place out, we'd love to do it. God bless you. Bye-bye.